always been attracted to characters who had original opinions. I don't always agree with them, but I listen to them. I read what they have to say. You're sorry to throw you off, but it sounded like you were on the right track, and I just wanted to You'll maintain mind that if I, uh, Oh, go ahead. Feel we've free. We've told not to be stupid here, and you're acting stupid. All right. Okay. Don Cherry, when he was at his prime on Coach's Corner. Jim Carrey, who's become more of a philosopher than a comedian. In fact, it's the exact opposite. You know, I... Uh, don't get me wrong, you know, Jim Carrey is a, a great character, and I was lucky to get the part. <laughs> Jordan Peterson, Kim Cattrall, Margaret Atwood. In a democracy, you're actually not supposed to shoot peaceful protesters. It's a democratic right to be able to protest peacefully. And Applebaum on democracy. Elizabeth Spelk on the coming collision between humans and machines. Ryan Reynolds with advertising. I mean, even the most casual glance at my resume, you'll see I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis or Christian Bale. I graduated from, like, the Aerosmith Online Acting Academy. (laughs) Cornell West, who believes that the liberation of blacks cannot happen without a wholesale rejection of capitalism. Strong opinions that make you think, that feed your curiosity, that influence your thought. And then there's another side to me, is music. Every time I'm on Crave or Netflix, I find myself gravitating towards the music documentaries. Not necessarily the artists that grabs me or the genre or even the decade. I just love the story arc. What begins with a couple of chords on a guitar, a few scales on a piano that takes some people to the very top of the world, playing to sold out stadiums, all that comes with being a star. First thing first, we have to do this next one. It's in our contract. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. But how did they get there? What was their determination? What was the kind of decisions they had to make? Talent decisions. If they're a band, how do they keep it together? The managers, publishers, and the promoters, and the record companies. And then there's the one-hit wonders that spend the rest of their life searching for that that adrenaline to find something else that has a hook that the world responds to. Or the artists or bands that transcend generations. People like Frank Sinatra, the Rolling Stones. Well, the press just wants sensationalism, basically. Oh, and, you know, like, or a strange image that they can work with, you know, like something they can write of. I'm talking about journalists, you know. Um, I think we've just been very good copy for the newspaper. You know, I, I, I've gotten past the stage where I, where I worry or think about what they think or want. The bands that break up too early are the sad stories of the artists who died way too young. Music's universal. It moves us emotionally and physically as individuals and as an entire culture. And there's few that combine both of these themes, opinionated and music quite like Bob left sets. You know, as I say, I could sit here and defend myself, but uh, my status and my subscribers are such that I don't need to. Question unanswered. Question raised. Who are you? What are your qualifications for even being up here with me? I'm a guy. Listen, you, you invited me. You're the one who reacted to me. So I think that proves that I have a lot of status. Really? Give him a hand. He's been writing a left sets letter for over 35 years. Today, tens of thousands of people read it, including myself. Bob, he's irreverent, he's beholden to no one, and he covers this intersection between artists, culture, and politics, and humanity. 
Taylor Swift wrote the song Mean to counter the scathing review Bob Lefsetz made about her Grammy performance. Kid Rock and Bob Lefsetz had a heated exchange, and, he, and Bob almost came to blows with Gene Simmons at the Canadian Music Award Conference. I have qualifications, and therefore you do not have the right to use my stuff in I'm, your TV show. I can. Gene, are you a member of the California Bar? I don't drink. Different question. <laughs> Are you an attorney? No. So then why should I trust your legal opinion? I make no legal opinion. But the point is, you are an ass. Oh, thank you. And today on Chatter That Matters, Bob shares his life story and views on music, culture, politics, and what it takes to be great. Bob, welcome to Chatter That Matters. How would you describe yourself? I'm just another guy on the planet listening to a lot of rock and roll music. I remember in the 60s when Bob Dylan said, don't listen to me, I know no better than you. That is true. Having said that, I think I do know better on a lot of topics than a lot of people because most people are uninformed. But the information is out there more than ever. And if you read it, digest it, you can analyze it, come up with a lot of conclusions, which people don't do today. Today, we're drinking content from a firehouse. Too much chasing a finite amount of time, but I make time for the left set's letter. It's read by tens of thousands. How did you find that audience? Well, I write completely differently from everybody else, or at least the documentation. Everybody else says writing is difficult. It's all about rewriting, fixing. That's not how I do it at all. I wait for the inspiration. And when I'm inspired, I can't get to the keyboard fast enough, and I pour it out. I reread everything twice to check for minor mistakes, spelling or you know, grammar or something. But I found if I change more than that, I actually ruin it. So because you can't get back into the flow you were in when you're actually writing the words. That's a powerful thought. You just let your thoughts pour. I've seen so many presentations in my career ruined by being overpolished, overthought, and overproduced. Bob, when I was doing research for this interview, you talked about the different roles music has played in culture. What I write about depends on what resonates with me. What people don't understand is that in the 60s and 70s, music drove the culture in a way that it does not today. I'm not saying that music is not powerful. That's my normal beat, okay? Music was the canary in the coal mine for all this digital disruption that has affected even the stock market at this particular point in time. So when did you start the Left Sats Letters? So when the century turned, I started my newsletter in 1986, I had a free subscription to AOL starting in 1992. I spent the latter half of the 90s online 24-7. So when Napster came along, I was the expert by default. I'm not saying, hey, here I am, the expert. I'm writing and people found me. A lot of stuff that's de rigueur at this point in time, I experienced in the first wave. People have no idea what the, you know I was talking about at that time, like internet hate. I went to regular public high school in Fairfield, Connecticut. It's 50 miles from New York City. The reason that's important is New York media, New York radio stations, New York television stations. And a friend of mine was the editor of the school newspaper when I was a senior. And, you know, you'd sit around with your friends and you'd talk. And that was during the Paul is Dead fall of 1969. I'm going to take you back in time to just give you context around Paul is Dead. It's considered one of the music industry's most notorious conspiracies. They created a rumor that Paul McCartney was dead, and clues could be found on different Beatles albums. Not only did they drive interest, they drove sales. It is 22 before the hour of 1 o'clock, WABC chime time. I just got a call from Georgia. Now, this doesn't mean a heck of a lot, except for the fact that the other night I got a call from Indiana, 
And the whole thing is about one thing. The fact that there is something very strange about the Beetle Paul. The fact that the Beetle Paul may be dead. In Indiana University... Uh, so what did you do with Paul is dead? Uh, there are said, well, what if the headmaster was dead? They called the principal the headmaster as a public school. I don't know why. I wrote that. That was a big success. Wrote another thing. And that was the initial path. When I went to college... I went to Middlebury College in Vermont. It's literally the most beautiful campus you'll ever find, but it has its own ski area. At that time and to this day, I'm a big skier. I had no idea what a conservative place it was. 45% of the people came from prep schools. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have cable. We didn't have DVDs like today. So on many levels, I was a square peg in a round hole. There was only one English teacher who wrote creative writing. And he wrote sea stories poorly. And I took his course and I read stuff and it was like springtime for Hitler. Everybody's jaw would drop. All these people had gone to prep school, et cetera, et cetera. I finally wrote something this guy liked. It was happened to be about going to an Alice Cooper concert on the killer tour in Boston at the music hall. And I wrote, he said, well, that's pretty good, but it needed a twist. You ever hear of the new journalism? That's already the 60s. You ever have a twist? And I never wrote another thing. Until 10 years later, a little longer than that, 12 years later. Just to drop a few names to make me look like a big guy. I'm at the Roxy, and I'm there with Brian Adams, his manager, Bruce Allen, who's a wild guy, also manages Michael Buble and many people before that, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Bonnie Raitt. And Bonnie Raitt's talking to me like she knows me. Oh, yeah, I love what you wrote, whatever. It's like, I never met her before. It's like a great thrill. So if you're somebody who's a music fan like I am, one of the, this is not why I did it to write these newsletters to reach these people, but I do, and it's a great thrill. I'm chatting with Bob Lefset. He writes the Lefset's Letter. It's a must-read newsletter for anybody in music and culture. You go into the music industry, you're working there promoting bands, but you kind of hit a wall when your opinion and your desire to grab the rudder clashes a little bit. So tell us a little bit of what happened and again, how that you went from there to returning to the pen. Okay, well, there's a lot of specifics here. I'll try to run through them relatively quickly. So after being a starving freestyle skier after college for two years in Utah, I went to law school, which I hated, but... I didn't have any other real options. And I graduated, I passed the bar, and I you know, I ended up working for a company that made independent films when that was a really big deal. This is before, you know, digital video cameras, et cetera. Learned how to make films, but we had other divisions of this company, and one included a record division, which I own with the other guy who ran the company. And he'd made a movie with Demi Moore called Parasite in 3D. And Demi Moore's husband was Freddie Moore. And Freddie Moore had a band called Boy. So where did that take you? There was a big new wave revolution in the late 70s. You know, some of the well-known bands were like the Knack, but there were a million of them. Most of them got record deals. And he had the band called The Cats. And anyway, then we made a record with him. We made movies. We put a band called Wasp in one of our movies. Uh, the leader of Wasp to this day, Blackie Lawless, came into my office and said, are you really a lawyer? He really couldn't really believe it. And I said, oh, I have a bar card. So I showed him the bar card. I said, I need you to represent me in a deal with Sanctuary Music, which manages Iron Maiden. I did that deal. 
Ultimately, the record was mastered poorly. I had a connection to the mastering engineer in L.A. That was done in New York by George Marino, did a lot of the hard rock stuff because we'd done the Freddie Moore record. When you're done with mastering, you have to cut refs. And it's not like a regular duplication studio. It takes time. You have to cut cut them in real time. Ultimately, I brought the refs to the rainbow where everybody, that's right next to the Roxy legendary bar. People are aware of it at this point in time, the rock and roll bar. And I'm there with the manager of Iron Maiden. He's an intense guy. And I started explaining to him, he goes, you shouldn't be a lawyer. You should be a manager. When I, my partner comes back to town, we are going to make a deal. And we did. Okay. And they bought a house that uh, Peter Sellers had bought but died before he moved in, ironically, right above the rainbow. They put money in the account, and I ran the operation. So I was the big guy. Uh, to get to the very specific here, Blackie Lawless wanted to produce his own record. Blackie had always wanted the song, I Want to Be Somebody, to be the first initial single. This is when MTV was big, and they would constantly have purges and new directions. And they said at this point, we're getting off hard rock. And there was another song called Love Machine, which I thought would be great for MTV. I stood up for the song. Well, just by standing up, this caused a little bit of friction. And the manager called me from England, and I said, well, you know, I want the record to be as good as it can be. He says, well, what difference does it make if the first album only sells 300,000 copies? People people listening to that would say, 300,000 copies? That's like a monster hit. But this was the 80s. So by standing up for myself, I caused friction and I lost my job. So, Bob, you're a failed freelance ski instructor. You've worked in music management. What happens next? When you have a job like that, you're working 24-7, which generally is the record business anyway. So whatever money I made, I could not spend because I was busy working. So for a year and a half, I lived off that money, worked on a couple of movies as a music supervisor. It was hard to get a gig because I had a lot of power. And then when I completely ran out of money, uh, my shrink sent me to a job counselor. There's a legendary job-seeking book called What Color Is Your Parachute? The job counselor said, well, there's a workbook, which I was never aware of, and you have to write six essays and brag about yourself. So I wrote those six essays. I got back in touch. This is now 1986, 14 years after that experience at Middlebury College. And I got back in touch with the, you know, the the, uh, belief that I wanted to write. So I sent things to varying magazines, and when the rejections came back, I was, well, this is just like the music business. Time and time again, across almost every podcast I've done, you find out that the people who make things happen versus wonder what happened are the people who know how to handle rejection. So you didn't quit, did you? I was reading Billboard at one point, eating a hamburger at Pico and Sepulveda, literally. Used to be a hamburger joint there called Flaky Jake's. And I'm reading, oh, this is terrible. I could do better than this. Now, just to be clear, Billboard goes up and down. It's in another down period. It was in a down period then, too. Now it's like uh, people who can't write for people who can't read. And there's not as much hardcore information there anyway. But I was aware that there were computers, et cetera. And, but I was, I famously said, I'm not getting a computer until you can talk to it, which now you can actually do. 
But I investigated, and there was this thing called the Laser Writer, which went with the Mac Plus. I bought those items. I got really into computing. Loved it. To this day, I'm reading right now a manual for the iPhone. I love finding out how things really work. So I was really pretty much on the front end of that. So you're rediscovering your love of writing. You've invested the last year's savings into a Mac and Laser Writer. What happens next? Started the newsletter with intention of getting another job. I sent 3,000 copies to three times to, I mean, 3,000 people were, I got them out of this book that no longer exists, the album network, Yellow Pages of Rock. Generally speaking, the most successful people subscribe. The people literally ran the labels, the president, whatever, they can hear a contrary opinion. Uh, everybody wanted to meet me. There weren't that many financial opportunities. Then uh, my ex-wife moved out. My father died. I ran out of money. The 90s were kind of a blur. But by as I say, I had this free subscription to AOL, and they charged by the minute. And I became an expert such that when Napster hit, everything was primed, and I moved my newsletter online. So I became the expert. Everybody would weigh in. I knew everybody, and uh, I my goal was to make everybody – this is a general goal – to make all the music available to everybody for one low monthly price. That is ultimately Spotify and its compatriots. That started to launch at the end of the uh, first decade of the century. Those people, Daniel Eck, et cetera, tracked me down uh, – Without going in those details there, eventually by 12, 2012 to 13, uh, streaming ultimately won. So listening to an interview where you talked about the point in history when streaming won was also the point in history when technology won. What did you mean by that? What people don't understand in the landscape is tech drove the culture because a handful of companies, depending on how you label it, either four or five, basically control the world. Now it's, well, what's actually happening with the people? There are people, if we talk about music, people are arguing about streaming payments, which most of them are wrong because if you, bottom line, if people are listening, you get paid. But people say, oh, I got a million listens. I only got a certain amount of money. Yeah, but there are people with a billion listens. Not to mention, in fact, you may have a bad deal. There's different ways they pay. That's a different, unless you want to go into it, that's a different radio show or podcast. But... Now, it's about the content. There are people still b***ing, but it's about content. We're in an evolutionary phase. Uh, same deal with TV, etc. Hi, you're listening to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. When we come back, Bob Lessetz puts on a masterclass as he breaks down the decades and how they define who we are today. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform, to find new fans through media exposure and access industry experts and mentors. RBC is enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. We're living in an era of chaos and the audience is completely confused. They don't know what to listen to. If you search for a hit record on Spotify, it 
except for there may be two or three original versions. There's the original, there's the original from the compilation, there's a remix. The rest are all karaoke, other people trying to rip off and get some money. That's, that's what kind of scumbags we have, okay? Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. I'm chatting with Bob Lefsetz, who pens the Lefsetz Letters, one of the most respected newsletters out there. Bob, your writing extends far beyond music. To me, you're more of a cultural anthropologist. Many proclaim that America became a superpower in the 50s. So give me your perspective of what America was like back then and how it's changed. Okay, the 50s were a hangover from the 40s in the war. You know, we had the GI Act in the United States, such that women didn't have to work, I mean wives, and generally speaking, did not. And there was certainly a lot of racism, racism et cetera, under the, uh, under the pages, and that's come out now. But life was relatively easy and relatively good. Then we hit the 60s. Kennedy is president. And all of a sudden, it's about a younger generation and change. Then the Beatles come along. You cannot overstress the importance of the Beatles. That was when the youth in general broke off from the mainland. The iceberg broke off. And there were all these mantras. You know, it's funny. The army stole uh, the mantra of the 60s, you know, be all that you can be. money in the 60s. And needless to say, there were so many, certainly in the United States, there were so many issues with war, demonstrations and riots. And then we had Kent State in uh, May of 1970. The 70s became about licking your wounds. It was about going back to the land and recovering. The 80s were about greed. Reagan legitimized greed, such that all these people, you know, the mantra was Jesse Colin Young, young bloods, uh, you know, get together, love your brother. By the 80s, it's like everybody for themselves. And everybody is starting to make money. This is when income inequality begins. If you look at music, music imploded at the end of the 70s, but MTV gave it another boost. The importance here is it became a monoculture. It was either on MTV and successful, or it was not on MTV, and most people did not know this. But music still was important, certainly the content of the videos visually. 90s was a cleanup decade. They refined music such that, you know, we'll make really expensive videos, try to make all the money. Clinton came in. It was the tech era. He blinked. And after uh, 1992, when the Democrats did not do well in congressional elections, he became more conservative, eviscerated welfare to placate the Republicans, and suddenly we hit the year 2000. There's a bifurcation here that most people, in many ways, that most people don't acknowledge. Certainly politically, you know, we had the contested election, certainly financially, okay? But this is not realized till 2008. There were a lot of people living on credit. There was the excitement of the internet. But all of a sudden, the crash happens in 2008. And that's when people start to wake up and say the game is rigged and they're screwed. I would say, generally speaking, the Trump revolution and the rightward uh, movement is the result of the economic inequality. 
Aren't you degenerating the elites and the thinkers with that comment? I don't want to denigrate the elites and the thinkers. The only problem with globalization, which is the only way to go, people want to pay $3,000 for a flat screen, you know, made in the United States. No, but they left the so-called little people out. As they got richer and richer, the little people were struggling. Now, in 2016, we saw on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders saying, hey, you know, what about these people? They said, no, no, play the game as usual. Play this game as usual. Trump tapped into this anger. All the workers who used to be Democrats, okay, the unions were busted, and the left were intellectuals playing with the same corporation as the right. These people went to the Republicans. Forget whether they're voting against their interests or not. So a big discussion now is white nationalism. Is that an important point? Absolutely. But on both the left and their right, there are people with little future who have a hard time making ends meet. Trump tapped into that. People, they, as they say in the UK, they threw a spanner in the works. So where do we stand? So right now, if you look around the world, there is this battle between authoritarianism and democracy. And we thought it could never, ever penetrate the United States. Democracy is in question. As a result of income inequality, art, which is famous for speaking truth to power, that's not an entity now. Life is so hard that if you're intelligent, you have an education, you want to leg up. You don't want to starve. You go to work for the bank, et cetera. Where in the 60s, the middle class was much larger and ruled. It was reasonable to pursue arts. Now, generally speaking, it's in Canada is different because the country supports the arts. That is not the case in the United States, not in any big way. I know I'm dating myself, but when I grew up, made in Japan signified cheap goods. And then one day they showed up in North America with a little lawnmower and it worked pretty good. And then that Honda became a, a, a engine on the back of a motorboat and that worked pretty well. And then the Honda Civic came along and the American car companies, General Motors alone had a 51% of share, kind of laughed until they got disrupted. Well, the great thing about uh, the Japanese cars, forget that they're stealing, you know, the production, just-in-time production methods, which were really an American invention. But he American that wouldn't get a, a, a day in court with the American automotive. Exactly. Was that, if you live through that era, you'd say, I wouldn't drive that car. Now, for people who are younger, we had the same thing in the early 90s with a Hyundai. I wouldn't drive that car. I remember in 2008, I was on the East Coast, had to rent a car. The only thing they had left was a Hyundai. I was bitching and moaning. After a week, I would have bought that car. Sony had the best television. They have this technology, Trinitron. You had to pay an extra $100 for that. All of a sudden, flat screens came in, wiped them out. Now, Sony's screens are made by Samsung. I often use Uber as a verb. It wasn't that long ago that we had to stand in the street in the pouring rain to try to flag a taxi down. Today, we summon a chariot. We know who the driver is. Payment happens automatically. Industry after industry is getting Ubered. And I can't think of a more powerful one in terms of disruption than Amazon. Okay, let's talk about Amazon. The product is really good. I don't know if you can say it on this product is really good. It works. It's trustworthy. If you look at the overall percentage of the market, uh, internet sales, truth is Amazon is very low in terms of the overall thing. But if you study the business with the problem you have with Amazon is you can't compete with them. 
They'll undercut. And then if you don't sell to them, they're going to undercut you. The Amazon is great. It's just their business practices where they're using their leverage to put companies out of business is something else. Those who follow me know I'm not a fan of how powerful this company has become, but I'm a huge fan of Bezos and how he has disrupted capitalism. All rivers pour into Amazon. Half of America's prime shoppers. He has so much data on you that he can predict what you're going to want to buy and ship it to you before you order it. And there's a high propensity you're going to accept it. Buys the Washington Post and cozies his head office up to Washington. And he's looking at banking and automotive and healthcare on his horizon. And anytime people scream antitrust, he just points over to China and says, well, if I disappear, Alibaba is going to take my place. Masterful chess player. If you really follow Amazon, prices are not super low across the board. Generally speaking, prices are lower on the internet than they used to be in your local neighborhood. You know, this comes back to the Walmartization of America. Yes, it hollowed out downtowns. By the same token, why, if you live in a rural area, should you overpay for everything? When Amazon is being anti-competitive, selling at a loss to put someone else out of business, that, I believe, should completely be addressed. And when you come to, yes, we know we have all the data, that's a different issue. That's privacy. And that is not only Amazon, that is Google, you know, and that is Facebook, and it's WhatsApp and Instagram. Coming up, the unencumbered and unapologetic Bob Lefset talks Elon Musk, Taylor Swift, and what matters to him. And the Grammy goes to Mean Taylor Swift. There's really no feeling quite like writing a song about someone who's really mean to you and someone who completely hates you and makes your life miserable and then winning a Grammy for it. Thank you. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I'm chatting with one of the biggest influencers in content and music, Bob Lefset. But someone in a completely different league is Elon Musk. Elon Musk and crypto. First, he loves it, sends coins soaring. Then he's concerned about the environmental impact of how they're mined, they crash. Then he holds a conference to suggest that solar power might be a better way to mine coins. Are we going to have a cryptocurrency? Absolutely. Can I tell you which one it's going to be exactly and what value? No. If you'd asked me a year or two ago, I would say definitely up in the air. Bitcoin has a lot of strength at this point in time. This is like electric cars. Everybody poo-poos them and wakes up and say, hey, this is great. Commerce ends up becoming much less of an issue with cryptocurrency. So it's just a matter of when. So when, when happens, what happens to the value of the dollar? You know, the value of the dollar, you know, it, it used to be, uh, you know, aligned with hard currencies. Now it's just, you know, the gold, silver, whatever. Now it's just thin air. You know, they print money in Washington, D.C. What's a dollar worth? You know, it's just what it'll buy today. China versus America. How's that going to play out? Well, the fascinating thing, China's versus America, is digital cameras versus Kodak. We heard for years that digital was going to kill film, and it never happened. Then all of a sudden, it seemed to happen within 12 months. Everybody got a digital camera, and that was the end of Kodak. Same thing with China. We heard for years there are so many people living there, what, 800 million or whatever, billion people, that that is going to be an economic force that we're going to have to reckon with. China is a big power. The problem is many around the world are asleep. China went to Africa 
bought all of these mines that produce elements for electric cars. When we're saying, no, no, electric cars in the United States, they were already you know, on that tip and beyond. As long as we are addicted to cheap products, our leverage with China decreases. So we have to focus in the North America on what we do well. Yes, do we do our best to level the playing field? Sure, but we also have to understand we've had, you know, half a century or longer where everybody in the United States believes the greatest country in the world, you know, now we're just one of the players in the landscape. Let's move off politics and let's get back to music. You write a lot about good and great. How do you tell the difference? In the 60s, these legends who were still selling stadiums today, they didn't get into it solely for the money. They certainly wanted sex but they wanted to make a statement and they evolved. There were certainly one hit wonders that fell off. These people are unique and it's a calling. That's why, you know, the person who was the class president, the person who was captain of the football team, they were never the artists. The artists were always some people, even they might even be attractive, but they were weirdos and oddballs. Those are the people who are successful. Unfortunately, as a result of the barrier to entry being so low, everybody thinks they're entitled to attention, but they don't even understand what it's about. It's about conception, the idea. Ideas are free. Execution. People say, oh, this is a great idea. It might be a great idea, but you have to do it. Are you willing to work that hard? I read a book about Greg Allman. He used to take his, uh, I mean, Dwayne Allman, he used to take his guitar to the bathroom to practice. Now people, they try, they're promoting online as opposed to practicing. I don't want to make this digital anti-digital. You got to pay your dues if you want to be that good. And if you pay your dues and you get good enough, you run on instinct. Okay, I'll give you a personal example from my life. I'm a skier. I used to ski every day. I go with the weekend warriors, okay? Remember being a big sky, they'll go to extremely difficult slopes. If you ski every day, there's less than 1% that makes a difference. You get in trouble, you can save yourself. I don't want to mention any names here, but I was talking about a concert with a household name person, and the person wasn't exactly happy because of monitor issues. And I said, the audience didn't catch it. And the legendary manager said, that 1% is the difference between good and great. That's what makes these acts great. And it's across the board. Let's talk about writing, which is basically a institution at this point. You go to the writing factory, a Iowa music uh, writer's workshop. You write like everybody else. And there's a great article. This. You know, it's about style, not about content. And you end up getting a job teaching writing at a college and you put out books that sell very few copies. What's that got to do with people reading great writing? Nothing. Where it always seems someone from completely left field, they wrote a book. And of course, the people who paid all their dues, the usual system complain. This happens all the time. You didn't do it my way. But this is what resonates with people. Bob, as you know, my show is called Chatter That Matters. So what matters most to you? I mean, there are a lot of different different ways to look at that. There's career-wise, there's personal, what gets me off. If you're asking me why I do it, I have to admit, having done other things, I don't really think I could do anything else. Having worked for the man, it's about getting along. It's like my story I told you with Wasp and Iron Maiden. Let's just everybody be nice. And I say, no, I want the record to be as good as it can be. No, no, no. We need to be friends here. That's just not my philosophy. And I don't have tolerance for f***ups. You know, people say, oh, oh, you know, there aren't misspellings in your uh, stuff. Well, hey, I am a good speller. But there also is spell check. 
You could run spell check, but you don't want to take the time to do that. Yes. There's a song by Jim Carroll called City Drops Into the Night. The guy wrote Basketball Diaries on his first album, Catholic Boy. He goes, I'm just a constant warning to take the other direction. That was the 60s philosophy. Let your freak flag fly. Question authority. You question authority today, everybody says, no, be a member of the group. Do it this way. I want to say be an independent thinker. Analyze the issues. What is the truth here? You've had public battles with Kid Rock, Gene Simmons, and your most famous was with Taylor Swift. And she even countered by writing a song about you called Mean. Is this part of your persona? Is this your way of getting publicity? There are a number of things. Generally speaking, I have to speak my truth. Most people have a hidden agenda. Even the softest of people. I know this really soft manager. Oh, uh, you know, people, people lie all the time. With me, what you see is what you get. Everybody else is playing games to your face. Oh, they're really nice. Then they'll put the shiv into you in the back. That's not who I am. You read everything. That is exactly who I am. I am not picking fights with these people for the sake of picking fights with Taylor Swift. I was the first person in the mainstream music business was a fan of her. I used to hear from her. She called me, et cetera. I hear from all these people. She can't sing. There are a lot of people who are sour grapes. Then she's on the Grammys, does a duet with Stevie Nicks, one of the worst vocal performances, if not the worst vocal performance in the history of the Grammys. What, I'm supposed to say silent? As far as uh, Gene Simmons, he's a legendary blowhard. You write something negative. They've had their ass kissed so long, they never heard the truth. And at this point, I have a high enough status. I can speak the truth. And sometimes, you know, I'm good with Kid Rock, not with the other two at this point in time. Because there's more commonality. I even went to his 50th birthday party online. I'm not out to get people. It doesn't matter about what the people think who are not fans. You know, there's in between people who say, well, you should see this. So, yes, I am the correction factor. And occasionally when someone is an incredible blowhard, I just reach my blow, uh, my my point. But I don't sit at home, rub my hands and go, oh, I'm going to go after that person. Never. Bob Lesset, thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. You know, music is so much part of our lives. And in so many ways, it's never been more accessible. Steve Jobs and the iPod put a thousand songs in my pocket. And today, Spotify has added three million more. So how does new talent get heard? Pre-COVID, venues that played live music were becoming an endangered species. The radio stations who used to pride themselves on discovering new artists now only seem to play the hits. And the big tours are often boomer bands. I encourage you to support emerging Canadian artists. And one of the easiest ways is take a look at First Up, which is part of RBCX Music. RBCX Music is providing a platform that combines virtual stages, mentorship, and much-needed dollars to help artists perfect their craft and find a stage that their audience deserves. Music matters. Let's keep those Canadian artists singing proud. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.